and to hate watch with us. Welcome! This week, Kirsty felt like it was the pressure of the weight of the world to think of something to intro this show with. So I'm doing it, and I'm doing a great job. <laughs> so this week, we're going to be talking about Netflix. They're making some interesting choices and dropping a lot of content on us all at once this May. Then we're going to move into something that we've been talking about for a long time, which is part one of Kirstie's rom com education. A rom com education, in case you couldn't have guessed, is the uh, full education into the world of rom coms, which is not a thing that I am versed in. And it will be a multi episode series, so now that the weight of the world has been lifted off of your shoulders. <laughs> sure, so Netflix. Netflix. Oh, Netflix. Hey, Netflix. What's up, Netflix? For those of you who may or may not be in the streaming world. Who's not in the streaming world? Some people, I imagine. I mean, re-episode two, some people still have cable. Yeah, but get you a girl that can do both. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Or a guy... Not gender specific. I love it. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, either way, feel free to dig out from the rock under which you have been living, apparently. Um, And let me tell you a thing. Netflix does original content sometimes. They do? Yeah. It's pretty (laughs) crazy out there. And they've got most of that coming out in May. And we're recording this episode on May 23rd, so it's late in the month. So at this point, Netflix has done most of their major releases for May. This week, they just released season three of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. That dropped on what, Wednesday? Maybe? Sometime last week, before the weekend. House of Cards is dropping on May 30th, which is next Tuesday. Master of None came out a couple weeks ago. And we've also had some announcements of future seasons that have been signed. So Arrested Development Season 5 has been made official. So it's an interesting time for Netflix original content. It's a busy time for Netflix original content. What was it that you said, Kelsey? Um, I, <laughs> I said that Netflix was really just shot their whole wad in May. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I stand by that. <laughs> so what we what I've learned after a, some late Googling is that Likely the reason that they are dropping all of their tentpole shows, or most of them, in May is because the Emmy deadline for consideration is May 31st. I think what's interesting about that to me is, I'm going to use House of Cards as my example because that's the one I'm most familiar with, but House of Cards was a winter show. It first came out in, what, December, and then had two seasons that came out right around Valentine's Day. And then Valentine's Day, you mean? Valentine's Day. And then <laughs> last season, season four, came out in early March, so it missed Valentine's Day a little bit and ruined my whole life. So Emmy deadline, like, fair enough. But it's interesting to look at some of these shows and know that May has not always been the release date for these shows. And I wonder what is going on for Netflix there. And there's some things that are interesting to me in terms of their subscribers and their stocks and general profits. So if you look Uh at the trends, like they tend to see huge gains in new subscribers right around releases, especially for House of Cards. That's been their major one over the years. And then not too long after a season has been posted, they start to see some of those drop-offs. 
because they get new subscribers just long enough to binge the season and then people get rid of their accounts. Right. So it's interesting to me that they would blow their wad this way just to get in under the Emmy deadline when they've had the entire winter to get in there. I am wondering, like, too, because especially these shows, especially House of Cards, kind of changed the game before with the television landscape in general and, like, what streaming meant and what the impact was. Like, what is this type of a schedule going to do to, like, general seasonality of shows? Like, it's almost like sweeps all over again. So, like, Mm -hmm. are shows not going to be dropping in in September on network anymore? Are they going to be dropping in May as well? Like, there's always, like, summer releases, but... It could also be that, like, this is a, like, kind of a dead zone in broadcast, and that's why they're dropping these. Hmm. That's interesting. I think it came up when I was doing background for um, episode four, What Fresh Hell Is This? Um, Because that was, that served as, like, our spring TV preview. It's fair to say that at the time, there were plenty of think pieces coming out about these mid-season releases, and every single one of them pointed at Netflix as fucking up the schedule. So, like, are they doing it just to be Netflix? Netflix being Netflix. <laughs> Netflix gonna Netflix. Mm-hmm. One other thing that I read recently, and unfortunately I don't remember the source, but it was talking about how profit and subscribers at Netflix don't necessarily coincide. And so it's really all about the budget of releases at any given time. And so there are some releases that are high budget that bring in a shit ton of subscribers, and that's great for stocks, but not necessarily for profit. And then there are times where they're making great profit because they're churning out some low-budget shit, but they're not necessarily bringing in viewers. Right. And House of Cards in particular is a big-budget show. Like, that really fucks their profits. (laughs) (laughs) What a quaint turn of phrase that is. (laughs) Yeah, they teach you that in business school. (laughs) (laughs) And so... I wonder what the risk-benefit analysis was for Netflix and what kind of precedent there is for broadcast networks and how much of Netflix's decision to blow their wad is based on the fact that they can't get their subscribers and profit to line up. I mean, I don't think that I have an answer for that because Mm -hmm. I don't... We didn't go to business school. (laughs) We paid for business school, but we didn't go to one. That's for sure. (laughs) But you see a little bit less, like, garbage coming out in the summer... You still see things like the Shazam game show that I can't deal with, <laughs> like, as a concept, but... Can you, can you build that out for a second here? A network, I want to say Fox, but I may be wrong. <laughs> oh, it is Fox. I know this for sure because they did a nifty thing with their logo. Oh, boy. They have Jamie Fox because they made the Fox logo have two X's, <laughs> is the host of Beat Shazam, in which contestants come on and have to identify a song playing before the app Shazam can identify it. So at least Netflix isn't making content like that. But I have seen like that some networks are kind of balancing their content a little bit more and p- putting out like some things that are a little bit better than Beat Shazam, in addition to all the Beat Shazams. Well, and I think a thing that's interesting just to watch as a trend overall is that Netflix has started putting out more quantity. I'm not going to make a comment on quality, and that's not to be, like, smug or snarky. I just haven't seen enough original content to really, like, play that game. But when Netflix first started playing with original content, and especially when they struck gold with House of Cards... There was a huge flurry, like a blizzard of think pieces about 
what this meant for television broadly. And a lot of the speculation was around whether or not Netflix would start flooding the market with original content or if they would draw back and really be trying to create a house of cards every year or every two years. And I think it really depended on the thinker at the time who was writing whatever piece. But to me, and maybe this was my echo chamber, it felt like the common opinion, you know, four or five years ago, is that Netflix was going to to stick to lower volume and shoot for higher quality and more artistic integrity. Again, I'm not going to try to comment on that. I'll comment. <laughs> it's my podcast. I'll comment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the couple, the couple of things outside of like, you know, there's like the, the major ones like Kimmy Schmidt, House of Cards, Master of None, Orange is the New Black, like the really acclaimed shows. And then there's a lot of like the ones that are more flooding the market, like this, the more saturation content. I've seen a couple of those like Easy is one that sticks out to me as having been a watching yeah. challenge. Yeah. Yeah. The world was a different place back when Netflix first started making original content. But for where I sit now... And when I scroll through Netflix and see a million and a half title cards with, you know, Netflix original watermarks on them, it doesn't shock me. Yeah, and I think that, like, the hope was that they would make shows, like, of that standard of those original, you know, first few shows that they put out. But I think they also raised the bar for every other producer, content producer, you know what I mean? Like, other networks that had shows like that in existence started getting more people watching them. And started developing new ones like it. So I think, like, overall it's benefited the TV landscape, if we want to talk about that. But I think that they do have a lot of shows that are just there to make shows. They're just there to hit, like, we're going to release X number of shows this year. And they're not necessarily thoughtful. And I think even, like, shows like Bloodline, which I know this is its last season, like, that's not any better than what you would see on ABC. Mm-hmm. In terms of story, in terms of filmmaking, it's a little bit better. But in terms of story, it's not. And I think because it's on Netflix, like, you can, uh, some people kind of say, you know, can put it on a different tier just because you kind of have to take a step back and be like, is it good though? Yeah, I wonder how much there's like a layer of forgiveness for older Netflix shows, like if Netflix originals from three to five years ago got grandfathered in, because I remember watching season one of House of Cards right when it dropped, and it feeling groundbreaking, like there being this feeling that like, all of television as we knew it was shifting before our Mm -hmm. eyes, like episode by episode. And not too long ago, I want to say like six months ago, my husband played the pilot of House of Cards for the first time since I had seen it when it first was dropped. And I was watching it and I was like, the fuck is this? Like, I see (laughs) the same scenes that felt so iconic at the time. And when I see them now, it's like, it's cheesy as fuck. And it's interesting because I'm watching Designated Survivor right now, which is like, your very traditional, like, big government conspiracy network drama. And so watching it concurrently with House of Cards, like, to your point, I'm not sure House of Cards is any better than Designated Survivor, but the cinematography was better and the platform was new and novel. And so I think it got away with things that it wouldn't have gotten away with if it had been on ABC right alongside Designated Survivor. Right. But people continue to regard House of Cards as being meaningful and impactful and 
everyone is hella hype leading up to the May 30th release. And my feeling is that it has been grandfathered in spite of the fact that seasons three and four, in my opinion, at least, were the Badlands. Yeah, and I think from what I've seen in terms of, like, general feeling from the past few seasons, it's been, like, I know it's bad and I still want to watch it, so it's more of, like, a hate watch for a lot of people at this point. Or it's, like, a mixed watch. Like, even when it's bad, I'm still gonna watch it, but I know it's not what I thought it was in season one, like you were saying. And I think, like, out of these four, having seen only one of them so far, (laughs) I still feel like it, it is actually doing the best job at this moment in its run is Master of None. This season has been really, really, really great so far. And I know you are a little behind on Master yeah. of None. I do the reading. But I think I think that's one where they've really kind of let them do their thing and not hurried them along too much. It, you can tell that they're still doing things that are meaningful and interesting. Uh, and I think like everyone will be talking about House of Cards, but I would like to hear more people talking about Master of None in like a normal office setting <laughs> and not in like a podcast setting. Yeah, yeah. Not in like the media sphere. Right. Yeah, Master of None has been an interesting one as season two has been making its way out into the world because I think it was a niche show to begin with. Like season one was spoken about as this like very elite comedy that would be an acquired taste. And like, if you got it, you got it. And if you didn't, no big deal. But it just wasn't for you. And season two has felt far more warmly received. And it's interesting to me that people make such a big deal of throwing around that season two is experimental. Because I feel like it's being said as if season one wasn't experimental. But I think to your point, that experimental value in the narrative structure is only happening because it's happening on Netflix. And Netflix does sort of give creators time and space to do whatever the fuck they want. House of Cards took that time and space and made something more like visceral and mainstream that would sort of hit you right in your lizard brain. And I don't know what Aziz Ansari was going for. I don't know. Maybe he did tap into your lizard brain just in like a funnier and less terrorizing way (laughs) hashtag we are the terror (laughs) so yeah that's just been like interesting to see the reception of season two it almost feels like season two dropped and all of the critics forgot how they had felt about season one sort of threw that aside and was like yeah season one is the thing that happened but season two so innovative i mean that's kind of how i felt watching it so far I think they took the things that were good about season one and made more things like it in season two. But it was funny, like, well, the very first episode of this season is all shot in black and white. And it's... Oh, yeah. As you were saying that it's um a little bit more, like, of an acquired taste and a little bit more highbrow, I guess. See, this episode is definitely made to, like, call back to a lot of old, like, Italian movies of, like, the 1960s. Which I've had to see, and I'm sure you had to watch in college. <laughs> but like, so I I knew that and could pick up on it. But when I talked to people who had seen it at work, they were like, oh, it was in black and white. It was so weird. And like, so that part of it, like, they still liked it. But that part just like flew right over their head. And I was like, no, but they were doing a thing. Which like, maybe I'm the asshole, but. <laughs> uh, so I think. It's interesting to look at the drop of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt next to the drop of Master of None, because so far the the 
think pieces that I'm seeing about it, you know, spoiler alert, are suggesting that that show has not broken as much ground as it could or that other Netflix shows have as they've gone on in time. So it's interesting to see the reception of Master of None, see people talking about it being so experimental and so groundbreaking, and then to see this show, which is quirky as fuck, is also a highly acquired taste. Like, this is not a show that's made for everybody. And with Tina Fey Mm -hmm. at the helm, with a lot of creative power, you would think would be equally as experimental as Master of None. And yet it's sort of being received as, like, perhaps being stagnant. Yeah, and that's how I kind of felt about season two as well. Like, it's a show that I'll put on and, like, knit at the same time. It's not something that you have to put your whole energy towards. But I feel like the other issue that people always have with that show and a lot of Tina Fey content in general is that when there's issues identified, they don't really seek to resolve them usually in future seasons. Yeah, I think Tina Fey is definitely a creator who sticks to her guns in spite of audience feedback. And like, I think that has served her well at times in her career. I don't look at the the difference in reception between Kimmy Schmidt and Master of None as being a reflection of the creator, per se. So I don't think it's like Aziz Ansari versus Tina Fey, like ultimate death match in the octagon. But I do think looking back at the history of Netflix originals where streaming platforms were going to be the saving grace of television as an art form and we're going to completely change the balance of power for creators because it was going to give them an infinite platform to then look at at a couple of shows that are, I mean, Kimmy, Kimmy Schmidt has one season on Master of None, it's three versus two, but to see a show that's not growing the same way as the other one. I don't know what it says about the show or about Netflix as a platform or about streaming content in general or whatever. I just think it's interesting to hold those two up against each other that way. Real quick showdown. <laughs> House of Cards intro versus Kimmy Schmidt oh, intro. Oh, House of Cards intro, hands down. Really? Yep. Oh, I'm Kimmy Schmidt. Well, okay. So first of all, the song from the intro of Kimmy Schmidt gets stuck in my head every single fucking episode. Because it's so great. Well, okay, so it's, like, funny. It's a callback to, like, a very specific time in the internet that I don't think is necessarily the time that we live in on the internet. Like, I don't think, like, the supercut remix thing is as much of a thing as it used to be. That's why it's so great. Because remember (laughs) how great those were? Borderline retro. They alive, damn it! (laughs) 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 I'm resisting the urge to sing the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) so i think it's funny i think one thing that has always struck me is that in terms of like the plot and the overall i don't want to say branding yet we're gonna get to branding but the overall like plot and meaning of the show that intro feels reductive to me because that intro is trapped in like the one moment that starts kimmy schmidt's whole journey it's the moment she comes out of the bunker and the guy is being interviewed about this bunker being in the backyard of his trailer park the whole time. And to me, like, you see Kimmy progressing through life after the bunker. And so to have the intro reduced to this one moment feels reductive because her life moves on. It does feel to me more like an intro that you would use on, like, a broadcast weekly show to be like, remember the story? Remember the story? Like, the origin story over and over and over again. I'll give you that. I think for me, the House of Cards intro, I mean, it's more classic and timeless, right? Like, 
it's establishing shots of DC. They're all time lapse. There's this like beautiful, like sorrowful, epic music that like gives you this sense of foreboding as like the clouds are time lapsing over you across the Washington Monument. And so it like encapsulates this feeling of like foreboding and power, which is all like essential to the show. And in some ways, like perhaps of higher quality than the plot itself. Like I think there's a little bit of table mm-hmm. setting that that intro does that perhaps causes me to forget some of the flaws with the show itself every single episode. It, perhaps. Perhaps. It's like a reset button. Perhaps. <laughs> Do you have like a Pavlovian reaction to that <laughs> intro? I think I think it's possible that that's what's going on. But I think that Pavlovian response to everything in House of Cards is super real. I think the cycle that I have seen since... Season three, probably, but for some people it started as early as season two, is you have this feeling that this is a really important, really high quality show that is saying something meaningful about the world that we live in and that has achieved something that television hasn't achieved before. Rah, rah, let's watch the whole season in one day. The season ends. You have an entire year where you're just sitting around being like, I want the next season. Then the promotion starts for the next season, the hype starts, the season drops, we start over again. By season three, people were getting, I don't know if it was worn out or if it's just pure disappointment, but season three and four really lagged. And for me, season three was fucking painful. Season four brought it so back painful. a little bit, but like season three was the wasteland. And I just want to tell our listeners briefly how we watched season three, because I think we deserve a medal of honor maybe not honor perseverance (laughs) so we have for the past three seasons watched every season in one weekend or a Mm -hmm. long weekend yeah kelsey and i live in different states so we would like drive to each other and then binge it before we would go back home which is a challenge because they're long episodes and it's like a slog and we also have other things Mm -hmm. to do like drink beer (laughs) And eat breakfast. So uh, season three in particular was like a real struggle and a half to get through. Yeah. So it's a slog is the (laughs) bottom line. And I think season four like started to pick up the pace a little bit Mm -hmm. and dealt with some of that slog. And definitely House of Cards differs from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt a little bit in the sense that the showrunners are sensitive to audience feedback and makes that painfully clear by breaking the fourth wall every fucking chance they get. But the end of season four was a worthwhile break of the fourth wall. There are these iconic moments where House of Cards really excels. And those are the things that seem to stick in the minds of the viewers. And so viewers come into it with this feeling that I think Netflix slash Bo Wilmington really cultivated in the first season, which is... (laughs) Bo Wilmington? Is that his name? Will... Will... Willing... Will... Willeman? What? Willamon? Okay, Willamon? I'm going to call him Bo. Okay. I don't know. It's not Wilmington, though. It's a town in North Carolina. <laughs> hey, that's also a legitimate last name. It's Bo it might Willamon. not be Bo's last name, but it's someone's last name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to save you from Russell Crowe. <laughs> no one can save me from Russell Crowe. <laughs> Russell Crowe is my kryptonite. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> ay, ay, ay. 
So anyway, so, so Bo Wellington. So there's this feeling that God. <laughs> so there's this feeling that Bo cultivated in the first season, which is that every single thing the show is doing is groundbreaking and revolutionary, and putting forth a worldview that is important and significant and weighty and philosophical and like for better or for worse, which I'm not here to debate. That feeling has stuck with viewers. And so even though we've gotten into the badlands of season three and season four, where viewers were loud and proud all over Twitter at the drop about those being tough seasons to binge and them being slow and not feeling like it holds up to the standard of House of Cards. Well, like, if that's what half of the series run has been like, then that's the standard of the show, whether or not you feel it. And yet there's this phenomena of viewers feeling a discrepancy and yet coming into each new season drop with the same level of hype and expectation. So the theory that I have proposed at this point is that that's less of a reflection of show writing, show running, and more a reflection of branding itself. And I think the best example of this is really any PR push that happens right before the drop. I think like it's not just the content itself, but the timing as well. Like they always managed to drop it at like this perfect time that's also a little bit terrifying. I mean like in the world. Like they had some really good um election related content that they dropped for this season in particular. And what's tough about that is that they then send their actors out on the press tour to talk about how current politics doesn't play into the script writing, which to some extent, if you just look at timelines, that's true. Like, based on timing alone, it's not possible for current events to really play into the script writing and whatever. And yet it's so on the fucking nose. Like, they're picking up Frank Underwood and just putting him on your nose. Right. And so, like, one thing that they did most recently, if you've been on the internet this week, you've probably seen that they took Kevin Spacey and the guy that plays Doug. Can't remember his name. That guy. That guy. Uh, they took those two and Philip Sousa, who was the the primary photographer for Barack Obama during his full eight years. And they did like a walking tour of DC and just like took pictures of Kevin Spacey in different places. And like, while the writing itself may not have been a reflection of current events, it was not an accident that Philip Sousa was the photographer that they chose. Their PR makes choices that the plot itself can't make. I would hire their entire marketing team for any project anytime. Well, I think even like... I don't know how much of a say their marketing team gets in final film production, which may or may not be an odd question given like vertical integration, but there are all of these iconic scenes that ultimately make it into like trailers in particular, but that I think really define the House of Cards experience for viewers that betray the plot itself and like bring viewers in with a higher expectation, but play in far more to the branding and marketing of the show than to the performance of the show. Therefore, we all walk into it with this image of what House of Cards is as a product and walk out of it with this image of what House of Cards is as a product without really dealing with the experience of House of Cards as a reality. Sort of like eating shitty cereal. Ugh. Like, I don't actually like shredded wheat, but I fucking think I like shredded wheat all the goddamn time, and it's from 27 years of marketing. <laughs> Why is shredded wheat I don't know. It's just the first cereal I could think of. Lucky That's Charms? Funny. I think I like Lucky Charms, and then I start eating it, and I'm really only here for the marshmallows. So I think 
Speaking of branding, I want to quickly touch on our on the Arrested Development pickup because they also had a really, really great teaser photo that they dropped with their announcement, which was basically, it was the announcement that season five is coming after a very, a long time, but not as long of a time as we waited for season four. And it said, and this time we're making them stick together, <laughs> which is both a really, really perfect tie-in to the show and it's like almost a direct line from the show but it's also a nod to be like we kind of messed up last time when we made everyone shoot on different schedules and it was awkward and we're sorry which was just like a very perfect thing that they didn't have to do but it was smart that they did do for sure and I think like uh, season four of Arrested Development had some really smart marketing and I think it was a similar syndrome to House of Cards where because of what Arrested Development was as a product prior to Netflix adopting it, picking it up, whatever, people were super excited that it was coming back and then disappointed by the reality of it. What's different is that Netflix didn't try to pre-package it the way they do with House of Cards to make it look prettier and more special. They took the Arrested Development brand voice and were like, boom, bitches, you thought you didn't like it? Well, here's an in-joke for you. Right, and it also definitely like invokes the narrator voice too that's supposed to be talking directly to you so it was just really great and I hope it's better than season four yeah I mean we talked about this several episodes ago I have some severe doubts about season five but that is based on the performance of season four and maybe they've learned from their mistakes I mean if we trust their marketing team they have but that's the thing is like I haven't seen bloodline so I can't comment but certainly Kimmy Schmidt House of Cards I'm going to lump Master of None in, even though artistically they seem to be performing better than the pack and Arrested Development, all have this really slick, like, marketing mechanism behind them via Netflix and seem to underwhelm an actual performance, even though the brand image sticks with you when you think it's incredible television. What a neat trick. (laughs) (laughs) Words are hard. Words are the hardest. It is a neat trick. It's a neater trick still, because I think even with all of the bloat that Netflix is carrying with their lower tier originals, there is still a sense of prestige that comes with being a Netflix original. And yet there has been a lot of talk about the fact that Hulu has a bunch of originals that don't perform well. Well, right, because I think it was the story of like, why can Netflix do it and you can't? At the same time, the people wanted to write about how Hulu is stealing the market share from Netflix and the only thing Netflix has to ride on is their distribution of international properties while Hulu has completely edged them out in the rest of the television market share. You know what? Blah, 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 Hulu blah, blah. can suck it. Hulu can suck it the hardest. I hate Hulu. We all do. Ugh. That's why I don't pay those sons of bitches. Give me some ads with that TV content. Like, Fuck you. And they pretend like they're not a conglomerate of, like, seven broadcast networks. And they are, like, the most evil conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Don't... You guys, you guys out there, our dear listeners, you think Hulu is fucking cool because they can get you, like, next day network shit? They're only doing it because they're a monopoly. Put on your tinfoil hats, bitches, and search the internet. <laughs> The conglomerates have won. <laughs> well, and on that note, Netflix. <laughs> May's really busy, huh? <laughs> so 
if you have thoughts or feelings about streaming originals. <laughs> you can send those to us on Twitter at HeyWatch with us. Or you can you can really strap on your tinfoil hat and hit me on Gmail. HeyWatch with us at gmail.com. Oh boy. <laughs> All right. Never underestimate my ability to bring the realness. <laughs> wow. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. As we teased in the beginning, there has been a long coming conversation between Kelsey and I about rom-coms and my lack of experience in the genre. I think we've talked about it in a couple of different episodes of Hate Watch, but it has definitely been a thing in our friendship for a long time. And to quote you directly, Kelsey, from, I want to say two or three episodes ago, it's the catastrophe episode, rom-coms are your bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And I was telling the story to Kelsey earlier, so I'll share it with you, our dear listeners. So Kelsey and I were both teenagers in the mid-2000s to date us a little bit, which puts us right in, like, peak rom-com territory slash, like, dude comedy territory. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I basically went through a phase where I was refusing to watch anything rom-com-ish or chick flick-ish and decided that it was way, way cooler to watch Will Ferrell movies. (laughs) So that's my area of expertise. (laughs) And actually, we have some episodes upcoming that will deal with this in more depth, but um, there are more life milestones than I care to admit that occurred around Will Ferrell movies. (laughs) Kirsten! Why are you sounding shocked? You know all of this. I don't know that I do. So we sort of came to this this place of reckoning that a lot of my cultural encyclopedia is incomplete because I have no understanding of historical rom-coms. That's right. And I have a vast understanding, maybe a an oversaturated understanding <laughs> of rom-coms. And that's where I'm here to help. So this will likely be a multi-episode series, so buckle the fuck up, my friends, because you're coming along, in which Kelsey is going to catch me and all of us up to speed on some important rom-coms through history. I am. And I'm going to caveat this in every discussion about rom-comdication with, I am the one leading the discussion on Hate Watch With Us, so I'm only going to talk about things that I've seen. <laughs> I am aware that there are a few gaping holes in my rom-com knowledge, and I'm just going to own own it and accept it. And if I'm missing something, you can shout at me on Twitter. Yeah, if you're prepared to fill any of the holes in our generalized knowledge, you can find us on Twitter at HeyWatch with us. Please do. So I guess we can start with some overall key points of rom-coms, themes, tropes, etc. Which I think most people know. Basically, the very short version of this is that it is usually a movie with a romantic plot that is funny. (laughs) Shocker. Um, In which there's usually two people who you can tell are being positioned to be good matches for each other and end up together, who who meet, come towards some sort of conflict, 
deal with that conflict and then resolve it at the very end in a positive manner. I think something that we've seen, especially over time, is that it doesn't have to be like a fairy tale ending, but it is usually like a satisfying ending where like even if they don't actually have a, you know, get married at the end with like a fairy tale wedding, they understand that they've like made an impact on each other's lives or something like that that's equally as sappy. Yeah, we talked about that a lot in episode nine about catastrophe, because catastrophe is a really strong example of how love in these are modern times has been twisted into something that's less of a traditional fairy tale and more of like an understanding between two people. Right. So there's a couple of things that you will see over and over and over again in rom-coms. One of which you said is new in your life, so I'm curious to hear why. (laughs) (laughs) So that one would be the meet-cute, which is basically whatever the situation is where the two people meet at the beginning of the movie. It's usually very cute, hence the name. Oh, so I can clarify that in a hot jiffy. The concept itself is not new to me. The terminology is what's new to me. Gotcha. So I learned about it from a rom-com, so talk about meta. (laughs) There's a scene in The Holiday from 2006, which is one we will discuss, in which they specifically talk about what that is. Another thing that we see a lot at the end of the movie is a grand gesture of some sort, whether it's riding in a limo down the street with a song blasting and roses and climbing up a fire escape, which is real, (laughs) to... And also my fear landscape, maybe. (laughs) It sounds too much like an episode of The Bachelor. I mean, it may be the inspiration for The Bachelor. To things like riding on a motorcycle chasing a cab through traffic in New York, to all sorts of things like that. Getting on a plane to find someone is usually like a big one. Anything like that, grand gesture. And then the other thing I've called out here um, is like the best friend character, usually of the protagonist, usually the female protagonist, who is there mostly like for comic relief, even though everything is funny. They're particularly funny. Um, They're always like a little quirky and they kind of guide them on their journey towards romantical bliss. Well, that's what I was going to say, right? Is that's usually the person that convinces them to get with the guy Mm -hmm. in question. So do you have any questions about (laughs) what this very complicated genre is? (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) Guys, like, you're gonna really have to, like, build a space for yourself mentally and emotionally before you can really handle this genre. <laughs> it's tough. This is tough stuff. So don't feel bad if you're, like, not really keeping pace. We can go slow for you. <laughs> All I was going to add for context is I'm mostly a newborn baby in the genre, as I said earlier. My main experience in sort of, like romantic story sphere would be the entire Doris Day canon upon which I was raised. A couple of other niche movies like Singing in the Rain, Meet Me in St. Louis, like I was raised on a lot of like classics. Mm -hmm. And then there's a few sort of major ones more of our time like Sweet Home Alabama and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I know it doesn't count technically as a rom-com, but in terms of, like, romantic stories with similar tropes, I would also throw in, as I have many other times for many other reasons, Almost Famous and That Thing You Do. And then I'm also going to throw the TV show Wings under the bus as being ones that fit a lot of these, like, romantic 
tropes, especially anytime there's like a will they, won't they situation that were super important and informative to my life. So I'm not coming from a place of complete unknowing, but I'm coming from a a place of ignorance mainly. I did see a few rom-coms as a teenager and like as a young adult, because I'm such an old adult, guys. (laughs) There are a lot of these films, though, that I remember on my first viewing being like, ugh, it's so formulaic. Ugh, we all know they're going to get together at the end. And like not fully appreciating why that is a formula that appeals to people. So I think now is a decent time to be coming back to the genre, especially since we have talked about shows like Catastrophe that are taking the genre and completely fucking it. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm not here to be like, this is a groundbreaking or particularly valuable form of filmmaking. And it certainly is formulaic, but I've always been drawn to it just because it's light and it's like comfort food. It's like, A, there's not going to be like any scary monsters jumping out at me. (laughs) And B, um, like you do know how it'll end and you do know that like you don't have to put too much mental energy towards it, but you'll still have a good experience watching it. So I think we can move into our first category of the rom-com vacation. And we will publish this all at some point on the internet. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) It's just going to be on like an old GeoCities website and it'll be up to you to find all the Google keywords that will take you. Like you're going to have to do some deep web shit. Oh yeah. Just watch House of Cards. They'll teach you how. They've got a hacker. He has gerbils or hamsters or something. Yeah. Do all the same keystrokes as his gerbil and you will find our website where where all of this will be published. (laughs) But for real, it'll probably be on our Tumblr page that's serving as our website. Hatewatchwithus.tumblr.com. Throwing a new one at you. So for foundational rom-coms, I've basically highlighted some of the key ones that will bring us to, like, peak rom-com era. So the earliest one that I found that was, like, the first rom-com was It Happened One Night, which is from 1934. That's another one I watched in college, so I don't know if you also have... They all kind of blend together at some point. (laughs) But. Gee, I wonder if it's because there's an inherent flaw in the genre. Hmm. Um, (laughs) So this one I do remember watching in particular and liking a lot. And this was a time when screwball comedy was big. And there's definitely a lot of roots of rom-com that are in, that come from screwball comedy, basically. So it happened one night. It's about, it's like basically the most traditional of all rom-coms. It's this girl who basically is kind of on this journey to avoid a bad marriage and she runs away and she meets this guy who she kind of has beef with at first and then they fall in love over time and they go on an adventure together and then at the end of the whole thing there is a grand gesture and they are together at the end. Not very surprising but it is like definitely the cornerstone of that very, very basic formula. So some other ones, we jump to like the 60s with The Apartment and Breakfast at Tiffany's, which have some of the other key elements of rom-coms, the same (laughs) same key elements of rom-coms. And then there's nothing- That was the entire genre formulaic. I missed that part. Hmm. Um, (laughs) So there's like big gaps of time where you can highlight like one or two movies. And then like we move to the 70s and there's Annie Hall, which people talk about all the time. And then- 
we get to the late 80s and early 90s and that's where suddenly the switch flips these movies perform really really well and all of Hollywood studios go crazy and try to make like 10,000 of these so the first one in 1989 is when Harry met Sally which I don't believe you've seen. I haven't. You'll find this time and time again as we talk over the next few episodes about these. This is a common thread with me. You've heard it before. There are many that I haven't seen, but either know my way around based on decades of cultural references or on think pieces. And so this is one that I know fairly well. Right. So this one is probably one of the most referenced, like you were saying. And this one... I'm going to try and give you, like, we discussed the Cliff Notes version. Key point of this one is, can you be friends without being in a relationship? And, like, the push and pull of, like, that type of a relationship where it's, like, will they, won't they? For a lot of it, it covers, like, this long 10-year friendship. And, I mean, it's, it's like, a, a cornerstone of the of the genre, obviously. There's, like, a couple famous scenes. It's not, like, something that is my favorite, Mostly because Billy Crystal just, like, freaks me out. But the message is still relevant of, like, can you be platonic friends or can you not when there is, like, sexual tension between you and all that stuff. Well, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it was one that, as many movies in the mid to late 80s were, but was very much playing with boundaries and was trying to be edgy and was doing, like, a little bit of, like, character study stuff, but also, like, there was, like, a coarseness in the relationship, right? Where it wasn't, like, all fairy tale relationship. There was, like, some tension and weirdness, and they were, like, not necessarily two perfectly molded humans. Right. And it was also, like, there's a lot of, like, real talk about sex, which was, like... Mm-hmm kind of alarming for people in 1989. It's a Nora Ephron movie, and she's written a ton of romantic comedy, so she has a certain style that comes up over time as well. This one was, like, I believe the first one that really, like, made that mark. Another big one here, a lot bigger in my mind, just out of, like, what I prefer, I guess, um, is Pretty Woman from 1990. This is one that I still watch on TV whenever it's on TV and I have time to watch it. And it's, like, over the top and ridiculous, but really great. This is another one where I have a lot of context from cultural references, but, like, exactly zero plot. Right. So this is the one that I was referencing when I talked about driving up in a limo as the grand gesture at the end. So this one is the first of many, 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 many (laughs) movies with Julia Roberts in a rom-com. And basically, she is a hooker in Hollywood, and she she does have a best friend that's very memorable as well, who fits all of those key points of being, like, a little rough around the edges and quirkier and funnier, and also pushing her to, like, do better and be better and, like, go after what she wants. But so she's a prostitute, and she meets this guy who's very wealthy and he's staying at this hotel in Hollywood. And then he ends up paying her to to stay with him for the whole time that he's there on this business trip. So during that time, they sort of fall for each other. There's a great scene where he gives her money to go buy like acceptable clothes to wear in public. And she goes in the store and they don't like take her seriously because of the way that she's dressed and she like makes this whole scene about like oh you made a huge mistake huge and then she comes back 
later and has bought like all these clothes. So it's basically like a kind of like a rags to riches story. And at the end of the whole thing, she does end up being with him. And there's a lot of like tension leading up to that where she's like, but you paid me to be here. So what does that mean? Yeah, I was gonna say definitely a super healthy empowerment tale. Like, super healthy empowerment tale. <laughs> <laughs> LOL, 1990, feminism, la la la. But, yeah, I th- it's memorable. There's lots of really fun, like, costuming of the late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> she has a red dress that's very, very important. Yep. So that's Cliff Notes Pretty Woman. Sleepless in Seattle is, like, most memorable in my mind because I think my parents had the VHS tape and I remember the cover so clearly. And it's like very early 90s and it has like one person on one side staring off into the distance and one person on the other side in a different landscape staring off into the distance at each other. Real legit. So I haven't seen this in a very long time, but from what I recall, it is this guy moves to Seattle and he meets this other person who is Meg Ryan, who also appears in many rom-coms for a while. (laughs) So he meets her, I believe, like on the radio and then she there's a whole thing where like they have to meet at the empire state building and it's like this whole big thing and he has a son and there's like a big scene on the empire state building and that's what i remember from sleep in seattle um (laughs) i think there's a song that's supposed to be important too i'm doing a really good job of this aren't i you're the best recapper ever i am i mean that's pretty much what i've got on sleepless in seattle i'm just gonna skip skip ahead what was the song though i swear there was a song If you remember the song, tweet us. So that's Sleepless in Seattle, (laughs) roughly. And then the last one that is a foundational one is a Mike Newell movie who also directed a ton of rom-coms during this time and features Hugh Grant, who also has really done the rounds in rom-coms. And this one is one of many British ones. Hugh Grant basically meets meets a woman, shocker, and he meets her at a wedding and then she kind of leaves and then they it's basically about how they keep meeting over and over again at different weddings and a funeral. And so it's like about how like they can't seem to like make it work because they always only see each other when they happen to cross paths. So that's my highlights of four weddings and a funeral. <laughs> Consider this Kelsey's, like, resume entry for her new (laughs) freelance career. Let it be known. I started my (laughs) rom-com vacation many, many, many years ago. (laughs) So a lot of these I haven't seen in, like, maybe 15 years, maybe more. Uh, so one piece of context we left out at the beginning of this is that the rom-com education includes a lot of different categories. So foundational rom-coms and quintessential rom-coms, oh, which we haven't gotten to yet, I'm jumping ahead. Foundational rom-coms is is the beginning of this bigger conversation about rom-coms and like where they came from and where they're leading right. to. And there's more variation in this list than there are in an upcoming category such as peak rom-coms or the rom-com Badlands. Right. But even still, all of those tropes that you introduced at the beginning are still valid, even though there's like a little bit more variation in the characters and even as much as the dialogue. And so my thing is like, I understand formulaic content. I, as much as anybody, consume formulaic content. None of us are immune. But to me, like rom-coms in particular are so deeply formulaic that like 
I don't understand what there is to get out of it. Like, you get a man and a woman in a weird position. There's usually, like, this thing where the woman needs saving and the man needs saving. And, like, the woman ultimately saves the man more than the woman because patriarchy. And they get together in the end. And, like, there's this grand romantic gesture. And, like, I feel like the grand romantic gesture, like, ruined me on real life. Not in the sense that I then expected everything to be grand romantic gestures, but in the sense that I then wanted nothing to be grand romantic gestures and believed that romance is fake and dead. LOL, hashtag happily married. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like... I see a little bit of wiggle room in that criticism in this list. But as we move towards more modern rom-coms, I do not understand watching more than one of these. And I don't think they're trying to, like, typically make any sort of a statement. They're just fluff. But why? I know that in any given genre, there's a lot of repetition. Like, God knows this is a thing that's talked about all the time in the horror genre. But, like, why? Why? (laughs) Wow. And I mean, I think that the repetition, like, gets worse as we go, but I think, like, I can see how in 1993, like, it was a BFD to have something like this because it was so uncommon. Sure. I can see some of that evolution thinking about older movies because I think sort of in, like, the classics era of, like, the 40s to the 60s, those plots were driven by romance, but not necessarily, like, rom-com right. romance. Just, like, heteronormative man and woman end up happily married, because that is the thing we care about as a society in post-war America. Right. So I can see that evolution from, like, the 60s to the 90s, especially when you hit that sweet spot of, like, when Harry met Sally and Pretty Woman, where they start dealing with some, like, touchy shit as society became, like, more open And started to push at, like, traditional boundaries. But then so much of, like, those patriarchal constructs and, like, heteronormative constructs and, like, all of these things still carried over in ways that, like, I failed to understand both because it's formulaic and because it doesn't feel valuable. And I don't – what I want to know from delving deeper into rom-coms is, like, what do they want to teach me about romance that I'm failing to understand? Sure. Hashtag happily married. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they're teaching you anything you don't know. I think they're teaching you, like you said, like, Disney-level lessons. Right, because it, it it is very much about, like, it's love at first sight, there's some conflict, and then you get married happily ever after, title card, credits, by. Or it's, like, what you see on the surface isn't what it, there may be really be in a person. Or, you know, like, stuff like that. Like, very, like, basic life lesson-y type things. If we move into, like, some of our quintessential rom-coms that I've picked out, like, Sweet Home Alabama, you know, it's about how she's sort of, like, estranged from her kind of redneck husband and goes back to try and get a divorce so she can marry Patrick Dempsey, and then, like, over time, she realizes that she actually does like him and he has a lot of good qualities, and after, you know, they do some shit with, like, sand and lightning. (laughs) (laughs) like a 45 minute check in the middle for those who haven't seen the film that's just about glass i mean it's how i learned glass could be made (laughs) i guess it's literally just about glass (laughs) that was the life lesson i learned (laughs) and that one's also about like being who you are and like knowing where you come from so maybe that's that's where like 
quintessential rom-coms come in as the next step from foundational. But to me, Sweet Home Alabama is not in the same way that like Catastrophe is now, but is a little bit about the importance of, as we value as millennials, self-love and self-awareness and the role that it plays in a relationship. Because, right, she leaves Alabama to become a high-power lawyer in New York City, and now she's, like, glamorous and fancy and rich, and that's why she needs to be divorced from this hick guy. Right. But then she comes back, and he reminds her of what's important in life, and they rekindle their romance. And, like, there's an implication that there is some kind of work that happens on each of their part. It's not just fate. It's mostly fate and mostly, like, what was meant to be all along. She just had to, like, come to terms with herself. But there's a little bit of work that happens. Right, for sure. So some other highlights from quintessential rom-coms. There's other Julia Roberts movies, like My Best Mm -hmm. Friend's Wedding and Runaway Bride, which came out, like, two years apart. But when I was watching these... (laughs) As slightly older than that, there were just a lot of movies with Julia Roberts and wedding dresses. (laughs) Yeah, she had the market cornered. She and Meg Ryan had the market cornered for a little while. There was also um, the lead guy in My Best Friend's Wedding, like, had a moment and then kind of dropped off the face of the earth. So he's a good, like, where are we now? Where are they now? Where are we now, I guess? (laughs) Where are we now? Where are we? Where are we? What am I? Guys, it's 11.18 on Tuesday. Just... (laughs) P.S. <laughs> Our shit gets lit, guys. Mm-hmm. So My Best Friend's Wedding is basically about Julia Roberts' friend, the guy who is a Where Are We Now, where is he? <laughs> <laughs> the, guy, <laughs> the guy who's lost. <laughs> we all know where Kelsey is now. <laughs> lost to the cosmos. Oh, yeah. Basically, so they are friends. And this is one of like the, the instances where you see, like, they have a pact to, like, if they aren't married by a certain age, like, they'll get married. So they have, like, one of those situations. And then he decides to marry Cameron Diaz, and then she... Oh, that's tough when that happens. It is tough. And then so Julia Roberts basically is like, well, shit, I actually like him after all. And then there's a whole, like, comedic series of events where she tries to stop the wedding from happening. Another really neat one, as I mentioned, is Runaway Bride, (laughs) which... The cover art that I'm looking at right now <laughs> has Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, same pairing as, same Gere pairing as Pretty Woman, um, reunited, and she has a wedding dress and is lacing up, like, running sneakers from the 90s, yep. which is just so quaint. I will get it, because your promotional materials can be a pun for, like, the name of the movie. Cover art of the 90s is, like, such a great thing. <laughs> So basically this one is, she's like a small town person who... Just a small town girl. Just a small town girl. Um, Living in a lonely world. A lonely world because she's left multiple men at the altar before. Oh yeah. (laughs) Basically she is like known as the runaway bride. So that's like her thing. So then Richard Gere comes to town to, he's like a journalist and he wants to do an article about her. Just a city boy. And then he's reporting on her like next proposed marriage. He took the midnight train Uh anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, they fall for each other during this whole thing. And there's this really great scene where she rides on horseback in a wedding dress to run away. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) So this one's, like, definitely 
more like lighthearted and funny than Pretty Woman is. Like Pretty Woman is funny, but it's a little bit more serious, in, I guess. So that's just another real great example of a quintessential rom-com. My favorite quintessential rom-com of all time is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Really? Oh my god, I love that movie. So I've seen this movie once, I think. And the only thing I know about it is that Kate Hudson's wearing a gold dress on the cover. Yeah, she is. Does she work for a magazine? Yeah, she does. Andy Anderson. This was like peak Kate Hudson. She was, she had her time as well. She was like directly following the Julia Roberts train. Interesting transition. Interesting transition. You know, add a little blonde in there and here you go. (laughs) So she's a writer and she, her magazine sort of, I don't know if they compete or if they just like socially know each other with Matthew McConaughey. Speaking of people who had moments. Had a moment. They had a moment together basically with this movie and it, yeah really helps them for a while they could like just ride that wave so he works for a competing magazine no i think he's an ad sales just a city boy yeah he's one of those (laughs) he does something he does a thing basically they both come up with situations where she is going to write an article about how to lose a guy in 10 days to basically give advice to women who are doing it wrong it's like pre-negging yeah, so it's all like buy him a plant and name it after his body parts in like the first week of dating. Buy a pet dog for you to have together in the first week of dating. <laughs> Things like that. Don't be too clingy. All really, really adaptive coping skills. Right. Good lessons for impressionable young women. Exactly. And then he makes a bet of some sort where he says he could date her for 10 days because he's kind of like all over the place. So he has to put up with her even though she's being a crazy person. She's like, why can't you just like, why can't I drive you away? What's happening? This one's just like funnier than, like it doesn't take itself seriously, I guess. I would think that this film takes itself like so seriously and that the rest of the world was like, rom-coms are a lower form of art. (laughs) (laughs) That also is valid and may be true. So they end up sort of falling for each other and you see it over time. There's a really great karaoke scene in this movie. Like a lot of rom-coms, weirdly enough, have karaoke scenes. It's because everyone appreciates Journey as much as I do. That's for sure. So they do, there's like a couple of different like moments over time where you see that they start to like fall for each other. And then there's a big blow up where they realize like, what each other kind of has been getting at the whole time, that they both have ulterior motives. And then she decides that she wants to be a real writer and be taken seriously. And so she leaves New York to go for an interview or go work in, like, D.C. because she can handle politics, apparently. How to lose a president in 10 days. And then he chases after her on on his motorcycle in traffic and pulls over and then is like, oh... I didn't, like, the, you know, they go through their whole song and dance. That's his gesture, <laughs> just, like, making a traffic situation on a bridge in New York. And then they live happily ever after forever. This one's just great. I don't know why it's great. It's just great. There's a lot of, like, good secondary characters. Like, her best friend character is really, really great. Um, It's 
Catherine Hahn, who's made many appearances on Parks and Rec and other fun things like that. There's some, like, mean girl characters that are really funny who work for the... I think it is an ad agency that Matthew McConaughey works for, maybe. There's, like, some mean bosses. And the other great thing is just, like, the costuming in this movie is really fun. Because it's so (laughs) of its time. (laughs) That when you watch it later, it's hilarious. And it's very 2003, and it's really great. And the other one I think worth calling out here, maybe, as like a slightly later quintessential rom-com is The Holiday that I mentioned before, only because it it knows what it is. Not that these don't, but this is the one that like references a meet-cute in the like dialogue. Yeah, I know exactly jack shit about this one. Like, I have no cultural references. I can't remember the cover art. Like, I've got nothing on this one. But to that point, my guess looking at the rest of the list is that those did take themselves seriously as representatives of the genre. And we hadn't yet stepped into the territory where texts could be self-aware in this genre that way. So are you, are you saying that The Holiday is like an example of like self-reflexive comedy within the genre? I think parts of it is. It still takes itself seriously, but it pulls on like obvious things that are like key tenets of like this type of film and calls them out awkwardly (laughs) well we are still talking about 2006 like self-reflexive comedy was not quite the thing that it is right now this one's fun because it's a twofer and you get cameron diaz and kate winslet as both like the protagonists of their own romantic comedy they just happen simultaneously so they basically are each like sad sack lonely people for one way or another and they decide to, over Christmas, switch houses. Like, but this is before Airbnb, but it was for, like, a house switching. Like, swingers? No! <laughs> like, it was, like, a VRBO type thing. They each switch. So Cameron Diaz goes to the countryside in England, and Kate Winslet goes to L.A. And so they both have, like, whimsical houses whimsical in whatever whimsical means. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and they each end up, like, over a series of, like, weird encounters and meet-cutes, meet, like, friends of the homeowner and end up, like, basically falling for each other's friends, which is, like, real weird when you start to think about it. Jack Black is one of them. Sure. Which is really alarming. Um, and then Jude Law is the British one. This one's just, it's, like, very sweet, weirdly enough, like, in certain parts. There's an old guy who, like, breaks my heart in one of the stories. And then it's basically about, like, come. it's basically, like, more of a story about, like, the women itself and, like, coming out of their comfort zone and, like, figuring out what they want in life. But via romantic relationships. Via romantic relationships. patriarchy. But not always. Some of it is just... Like, the cute old man that Kate Winslet meets, and she learns about his life, and helps him win an award, and it's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) And she feels fulfilled because she made his life better. Because he won an award? It's a major award! Cameron Diaz gets drunk in a, like, little cottage in England, so if that's not life goals, I don't know what is. Sure. It's just fun. It's a Christmas movie, kind of, but not totally. So that's my, like, real week list of quintessential rom-coms for the most part. (laughs) I realize we skipped You've Got Mail. Is it just about the aspirational value? Yeah. 
That's part of it. Not to be reductive, but like, is it just that fairy tales need to happen? Sometimes we need things to live for in these are modern times, Kirsty. <laughs> but like, this is the thing. No. I mean, just because I liked them, I didn't go around being like, looking for my meet cute and my grand gesture. I mean, doesn't everybody kind of look for their meet cute though? I mean, I don't know if I had a meet cute, which gets offered. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know I don't. Like, my first date story is very endearing now. But I wouldn't call it a meet cute. Like, it would make for a really good teen teen comedy. Right. For what that's worth. Since that's literally how that unfolded. But I don't know. Like, one of the recappers that we follow, Catherine Van Arendonk from Vulture and Appointment Television, wrote a thing during the last season of The Bachelor about how The Bachelor functions as like a rom-com since that genre died after its heyday in the mid-2000s. And so The Bachelor has sort of stepped up and filled that. And so much of its role in filling that gap is about putting forth like the aspirational and material version of love. So looking at it as like beautiful people in contrived fairy tale situations with like limos and roses and horses and like whatever it is that people materially seem to think is romantic. And so is that like all rom-coms are? Yeah. Because that's why I don't watch rom-coms. So like, help me. I don't know. Like sometimes it's, it's like she's all that and she's like this like doofy like high school girl who like has glasses and big hair and then like ends up dating some guy who's like really great or whatever and maybe you're like a high school girl who has glasses and big hair and you're like oh maybe i have something to live for (laughs) (laughs) hashtag patriarchy so is it like maybe does it just come down to the idea that like love conquers all and that's all like it's all like part of our innate human experience to discover the meaning of life and love. And this is just like a cheap, easy way for for people to capitalize on like human nature. Yeah, that's like a pessimistic view of it. <laughs> but I think, I mean, yeah, I think it's also about like, maybe you have things to learn from people or like, it's often people who are opposites in some way. So it's like being tolerant of other people and being open to other people who are different than you. I'm not trying to poke holes in it to to say that there's like, I think people walk into the genre and are very willing to say that like, the genre is meaningless. These stories are meaningless. There's no value to it. And so I don't mean to walk into it coming from that viewpoint. I guess what I'm hearing is that they're like the binding theme is learning self-awareness, learning and accepting and growing through the things that other people offer you. But my question is, why do we seem to place more value on romantic love as a vehicle for that via rom-coms versus talking about it through this like broader lens of like love as a construct for all people in all the relationships in our lives? I think we get there to some extent. Like I think some of so our- this is like these foundational and quintessential rom-coms are like putting us on that trajectory. Yeah. And there's a lot- a lot, lot, lot of, like, stuff to get through and dig through. But I think, especially, like, in our rom-coms for These Are Modern Times section that's coming up at some point, there's definitely things that have other themes that just still have the elements of rom-coms, but also have a lot of other things to discuss. And then there's a lot of this 
type of story has been carried over into TV. So we're going to talk about that too. And then I think like that's where like the evolution of the bromantic comedy came from, right? Like mm-hmm. is talking Getting about friend love. friend love. And there's some examples of like family stories in here as well. So I think we get there. So it sounds like, if I can summarize to show an assessment of my learning, (laughs) there was a tradition of most stories being focused around traditional love. Call that what you will. And then we awoke to an era of romantic comedies, which sought to take those romantic stories and turn them into something like friendlier and more lighthearted and more digestible. Yes. There was a slight evolution in how those played out and how much depth and edginess they wanted to play with as the taboos of society changed from the 30s to the 90s. And then we moved into an era of romantic comedies that had more common threads with each other, but were playing with maybe less direct versions of falling in love, like messier meet cutes, I guess. Yep. But that's still really coalesced around the real meaning of rom-com, which is like, boy-girl meet, boy-girl, will they, won't they, boy-girl, will they. Yes. Love, 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 love. Yes! That's so beautiful. Yay! Yes. So, as a preview of what's to come, we have some things like rom-coms of my formative years, (laughs) high school rom-coms, peak rom-coms, the (laughs) rom-com Badlands. Literally every movie made from 2004 to 2011. It's great looking at the dates in Peak versus Badlands because Peak takes us from 2000 to 2010. And then Badlands starts in like 2004 and takes us to like 2011, 2012, where it ends with literally two movies that were exactly the same that came out in the same week, basically. Yeah, they did. And that's where we all went to die. We did. I think I saw both of them in theaters. (laughs) (laughs) so we're going to talk about rom-coms for these are modern times we're going to talk about almost rom-coms tv rom-coms and bromantic comedies so that's our list now if you have any suggestions we'd be happy to consider them to be added to our list so if there are any that you think i need to see please keep in mind that my mo is that i have not seen anything so don't don't worry about being presumptive just send shit to us yeah and i'll try to watch it Join the conversation on Twitter at HateWatchWithUs. Or email us at HateWatchWithUs at gmail.com. I think the thing that'll be most interesting to me as we go through the rest of this curricula will be to see if I become any less jaded about the genre. So keep that in mind as you listen. We're also probably going to try to space this out over several episodes. So I think we're looking at maybe four or five episodes and probably not consecutive. So we'll break it up for you. But definitely feel free to hit us with suggestions. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Goodbye. I feel like woo girls are a thing of rom-coms, so. <laughs>